Midnight, zero hundred hours, July 10th, 1945, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. This night, five men await execution in their cells on death row at the United States Central Military Prison. One by one, each is marched to the gallows, recently constructed over an elevator shaft at the prison salvage warehouse. All in attendance are called to attention by the prison commander, Colonel William Ely, who reads the sentence, to be hanged by the neck until dead. Each condemned man is permitted to make a final statement. Colonel Ely pronounces, may God have mercy on your soul. Then the prisoner is led to the gallows platform where his hands and feet are bound while a black hood is placed over his head. A noose is guided around his neck. Silence fills the death chamber. At the commander's signal, a lever is pushed forward and the trap door of the gallows falls open. The process repeats four more times that night. Zero hundred hours, July 14th. 1945, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Two prisoners are hanged at the warehouse. Zero hundred hours, August 25th, 1945, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Seven men meet their maker in the dark elevator shaft. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, before I get started on tonight's case, I'd appreciate it if you would listen for a moment to a friend of mine who in his spare time, does something truly awesome. Hi, my name is Rick Burns. After multiple army deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, I founded Karata Project to continue supporting peace, stability, and humanitarian efforts in those countries. 
In Afghanistan, there are over 2.5 million internally displaced persons. There are over 1.9 million Iraqis internally displaced. You won't hear much about these people. They live in the shadows, far away from the media attention of those crossing borders as refugees. But they are in equally devastating circumstances. Forced to flee violence, war, natural disasters, poverty, and other devastating crises, innocent people, mostly women and children, are forced to live in austere camps on the edges of society where language, cultural differences, competition for jobs, and prejudice cause them to be discriminated against and ostracized. Economic opportunities are limited, and education for their children is delayed or may even be halted forever. Through our local partners, we are giving displaced women marketable skills, literacy instruction, business mentoring, and earn-as-you-learn opportunities through negotiated contracts. We partner with the UN World Food Program to provide the women with food rations for their families during the six-month program. These women are pulling themselves out of poverty and improving the lives of their families. We're not stopping there. We created a kindergarten to give their children a start to their education and provide a conduit into the public pri primary schools. In rural areas, we're building bathrooms in girls' schools where none exist. Imagine teenage girls with no bathroom facility. We're also giving poor women self-sustaining hens and goats. These are just a few of the ways we're making the world a better place. If you want to change the world, join us. Okay, listeners, Rick won't ask you for money, but I will. Rick is a super guy, retired Army, father of five, and I think, and grandfather too. I can't remember how many. Anyway, during his deployments in the Middle East, he saw needs, not big expensive needs, little things. The Karada Project, it's Karada, K-A-R-A-D-H-A, -A -A, started with him arranging to have some goats sent to a village in Afghanistan. He still runs the Karada Project on a shoestring budget. No fancy office with a well-paid staff to run things and raise money. This is just Rick and some good friends trying to make the world a better place by doing small things with large impact. And listeners, some of his Karata associates overseas literally risk their lives to do this. All they need from us is a little money to keep going. The website is www.kradah project, all one word, dot com. There's a donate button right there, or you can go to amazon.smile or goodsearch.com to donate. Even small amounts go a long way. Thanks, listeners. I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. In the summer of 1945, World War II is in its final days. Hitler commits suicide on April 30th. Germany formally surrenders on May 7th. On August 6th and 9th, atomic bombs fall on Japan. The emperor formally surrenders on September 2nd. 
in the midst of all the momentous news of 1945. The July and August hangings at Fort Leavenworth take place with little notice in the press. The murders for which the men are hanged, likewise, the American public pays scant attention to them. There are three murder victims. The first five men hanged at Fort Leavenworth are convicted of the first murder. The next two men hanged of the second murder and the last seven men of the 14 die for the killing of a third victim. The first victim is named Corporal Johannes Kuntz. On November 4, 1943, his bloody and battered body is found lying just outside of barracks at Camp Tonkawa in Oklahoma. Camp Tonkawa is a prisoner of war camp located near Tonkawa, a little city of about 3,000 people. If you look at a map of the continental United States, Kansas is right in the middle. Oklahoma is south of Kansas, between Kansas and Texas. Tonkawa is in the north-central part of Oklahoma. If you're driving, it's about 90 minutes due south of Wichita on Interstate Highway 35. I-35, listeners, is an infamous highway in the United States, at least to me. It goes from Laredo, Texas, on the border with Mexico, all the way up to Duluth, Minnesota, on Lake Superior. A number of serial killers have operated on I-35. I'm from Texas, so I've had the dubious pleasure of driving on I-35 many, many times, although I will say that I avoid it whenever possible. Honestly, from Oklahoma City South, it's the highway to hell. Lots of construction, wrecks, unbearable traffic. It's not as bad in Kansas and northern Oklahoma. So I know the Tonkawa Rest Area well, which is right on I-35. I often stop there on the way to Texas. There's an Indian casino and a big Flying J truck stop there. There's not much in northern Oklahoma. It's very sparsely populated, uh, very dry and flat and windy with lots of dark brick red dust. So all in all, I would say a great place to put prisoner of war camps. During World War II, Camp Tonkawa housed about 2,500 mostly German prisoners of war, guarded by a few hundred U.S. soldiers. Listeners, when I first thought about this prison camp in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, I couldn't help but think those poor German soldiers. What a shock from green, rainy Germany. But in reality, maybe not so much. Most of the prisoners there during World War II are from the famous German Afrika Corps, commanded by the famed Desert Fox, German Field Marshal, Erich Rommel. So, the prisoners at Camp Tonkawa are captured in the African desert. I'm thinking Oklahoma's the Garden of Eden 
compared to that. It's interesting to explore the history of prisoner of war camps in the U.S. during World War II. There are many of them, primarily in sparsely populated parts of the country. Hundreds of thousands of prisoners were kept in them during the war. There is surprisingly little civilian opposition to them. In fact, they're welcome in some areas. The reason for this is that there's a huge wartime manpower shortage in America. All the able-bodied young men are off fighting in Europe or the Pacific. In the meantime, factories and mines and farms still need to operate. Roads and buildings need to be built and maintained. So prisoners of war in the U.S. are put to work on the home front. As I was researching this project, I came across lots of articles in local papers about how the prisoners are treated and what goes on at the prisoner of war camps. As far as I can tell, camp commanders try very hard to follow the rules of the Geneva Convention on treatment of prisoners of war at least as much as they possibly can. I'm sure the newspapers paint a rosy picture of life in the POW camps. After all, there's a war on. The press is part of the war effort. They will naturally emphasize the positive and downplay anything negative. There's a requirement that the prisoners be paid for the work they do. Um, but it's not in cash. In one paper, it says prisoners make 80 cents a day in vouchers that they can spend at the camp commissary on things like cigarettes and candy. At Camp Tonkawa, the prisoners are given a beer ration of a quart a day. Um, oh, a quart's right about the same as a liter. There's another requirement to give the POWs a daily newspaper. It's naturally an American newspaper. So mainly bad news if you're a German soldier. Many of them complain that it's just propaganda and they, they may have a point there. A lot of negative news is not reported in American newspapers. On the other hand, they've all seen with their own eyes what it's like in America, and they've gotten to know some actual Americans. And they have to realize it's a very different picture than what they heard from the Nazi government. As workers, the POWs are very popular especially with local farmers, so much so that requests for workers had to be centralized in a main government office because camp commanders were inundated with farmers and ranchers coming to the camps wanting to take prisoners home with them to put them to work. There's lots of good press about how most of them are just like us and excellent workers. In August 1943, when the first POWs arrive at the camp, 
One young soldier, assigned as a guard, relates, quote, I expected to see giants, tall, blonde, and German. I thought they would be perfect specimens. But they were just ordinary guys, tired and hungry, and some of them sick, unquote. For the most part, the philosophy at the camps among the U.S. soldiers is to treat the captured men as soldiers, not as criminals. Human interest stories abound. The campfire girls of Tonkawa make Christmas presents for the prisoners. The POWs put on concerts for the locals. Listeners, this isn't just wartime propaganda. On the whole, POWs in the United States received very good treatment. I would say maybe better than inmates in our civilian prisons. I've talked with people who worked in the camps and even former German prisoners. After the war, there were reunions of former POWs in the United States with their guards and the farmers they worked for in the U.S. When my husband and I were stationed in Baumholder, Germany, near, um, that's on the western side near the French border, in the 1970s, a local farmer there would, every spring, plow up one of his fields near the barracks and let Americans plant little gardens there. He told us it was to thank the people in America who were so kind to him when he worked on their farms. He was a prisoner of war in Utah. He often went back to visit one of his fellow prisoners who married an American farmer's daughter after the war. Of course, not all German POWs are resigned to life as prisoners of war. Many are still very committed Nazis who still hold out hope Hitler will win the war. It's natural that they all have loyalty to their homeland, where their, where their families live and are still in great peril from the war. So there are different levels of resistance to the Americans within the camps. There are escape attempts. They're downplayed by the military and the press. However, fears of marauding bands of escaped German prisoners roaming the countryside, that's not an unfounded fear. Essentially, the prison camps are hastily constructed barracks with barbed wire perimeters. Guards are outnumbered by inmates as much as 10 to 1. Keeping order in the camps is not an easy thing. Plus, let's just say that those in charge of the camps are not always the best and brightest. After all, in wartime, the most capable commanders and soldiers are most likely on the battlefield. As far as I could find, no POW successfully escapes or is there any violence from escapees to civilians? 
but it's certainly possible incidents like that happened and were covered up. There's a war going on. Anyway, it's common for the camp commanders to leave in place the military rank structure the prisoners had before they were captured. In 1943, the reality at Camp Tonkawa is that the prisoners are all very recently captured. At the time, Hitler has his hands full in Europe and Russia and isn't paying much attention to Africa. Many of the troops at Camp Tonkawa are conscripts, some from Poland and Czechoslovakia. As a fighting force, these men, well, again, let's just say they aren't the brightest and the best. They're demoralized and they're tired of war. As far as anyone knows, there are no German officers there, although it is rumored that sometimes captured officers put on disguises as low-ranking soldiers. There are some higher-ranking non-commissioned officers, though, who try to maintain discipline and morale and commitment to Nazi ideals among the prisoners. One of these is Hauptfeld Webel Walter Bär. That rank, Hauptweltfabel, is roughly equivalent to a first sergeant in the U.S. Army. So he is one of the ranking guys in charge of a company, roughly two or three hundred men um, among the POWs. Bear is a true Nazi believer. Okay, listeners, I know just about enough German to be annoying. I'll try to pronounce the German correctly, but I probably won't. I've already probably anglicized Walter. Pretty sure that's Walter in Deutsch. And the last name may be Beyer. It's spelled B-E-Y-E-R. I'm not sure. Plus, all the research I looked at is in English, so... There could be some umlauts missing here and there. Anyway, I apologize for my German pronunciation in advance. There are a few German listeners out there. Our victim, Corporal Kunz, is not a committed Nazi. Obergefreiter, or Corporal, Johannes Kunz, is a machinist from Hamburg, Germany. He's older than most of the men, aged 39. When he was drafted into the Afrika Corps, he was working in a German factory. He has a wife and children in Leipzig, Germany. Under the Geneva Convention, POWs are allowed mail from home, and they can write to their loved ones. The letters are, of course, censored, on both sides, I'm sure. Johannes writes home regularly. To tell the truth, he was relieved to be captured by the Americans. He has nothing but good things to say about the U.S., including that he would like to bring his family to America to settle after the war. 
letting his feelings like this be known is perhaps not wise. In fact, it will prove fatal for Johannes. While many German POWs have settled into life into the, in the camp and resigned themselves to just waiting out the war there, others like Hauptfeld, Webel, Bear think very differently, and they still have power over the other Germans in the camp, regardless of their commitment to the Nazi cause. Rumors begin to circulate that Johannes is a collaborator, even a spy for the Americans. And he is. He's not a super valuable spy. He doesn't know much that's of use to the war effort. He's just a foot soldier, and he's been away from Germany for several years, stranded, fighting a losing battle in Africa. His primary usefulness to the Americans is what he knows about what's going on in the camp, like strikes and escapes. Once rumors start going around that Johannes is a collaborator, at best, no one is going to tell him anything. At worst, his fellow prisoners will punish him. The worst is what happens. There's some indication that the Americans are planning to transfer Johannes Kuntz for his own safety. It's not uncommon for POWs to be moved around. Typically, the transfers are kept on the down low, so no one suspects what's going on. The prisoner is just suddenly taken out of formation and whisked away to another camp where he's not known. Some spies are even given false identities to help them do their spying. In this case, it's difficult to say what exactly happened. Now, if you look online for this case, the most common version is similar to the Wikipedia account, which goes something like this. Johannes would pass notes to the American doctor at the camp. One day, he gave a note to a different doctor who wasn't in on the spying. This doctor didn't read German and gave it to one of the other POWs to give back to Johannes. That POW read the note, figured out Johannes was a spy, and reported this to Hauptfeldwebel Bear. I think what really happened is a little different. I say that because there is a book, The Killing of Corporal Kuntz, about the case. You can buy a copy on Amazon.com. I read it uh, for free on archive.org. That's a free online service with a huge collection of historical materials you can check out. It's not a terribly long book. It was written in 1981 by Wilma Trummel Parnell. In 1943, Wilma is working as a clerk at Camp Tonkawa. This book is her recollection of the investigation into the death of Johannes Kuntz, as well as an account of the subsequent trial taken from the files of the military prosecutor. It's a fascinating read. So most of what I say will 
be from Wilma's book about the case. When the body of Johannes Kuntz is discovered at the camp, Wilma is quickly pressed into service to document the urgent investigation. She takes notes at all the interviews and organizes all the investigation materials. Her version of the discovery of the spying goes a little differently from what I just got from Wikipedia. It's most likely that a letter to his wife Erna and some vague notes about Hamburg lead to the revelation that Johannes is collaborating with the Americans. Outgoing letters, of course, are screened at the camp and later by official government censors. Apparently, the incriminating documents are left on the desk of one Lieutenant Young. When questioned, Young admits that he depends heavily on one of the prisoners who works for him, Feldwebel Karl Heisig, who often translates documents for him and makes sure letters to Germany are properly addressed and packaged. Asked whether he gave the documents in question from Kuntz to Heisig, he says, according to Actually, what I'm reading is from the book. Young, perspiring, and flushed pink to the roots of his steel-gray hair, stared at the paper for a while and said flatly, I have no knowledge of ever seeing this before. While not strictly responsive, the statement was clear enough. It was the last we were to hear from or of the lieutenant. He was whisked away to another assignment, and his name was never mentioned again in my presence. Astonishingly, Heisig too vanished at this juncture. He was transferred to another jurisdiction before he could be questioned again, and the trail of the document that had triggered the killing stopped with him. It had appeared one day in his hands and he had handed it to Bear. That was all we ever surely knew. Now, by numerous accounts, once Bear is presented with supposedly solid evidence of Kuntz's treachery, he has to do something. Late at night on November 4th, 1943, he calls a meeting of the prisoners in his company at their mess hall. A couple of hundred men are present. Evening meetings in the mess hall are not uncommon. Once the work for the day is done, the prisoners often meet for English classes and singing practice and, truth be told, Nazi indoctrination meetings. The guards are used to this and it's allowed. This night, though, the meeting has a sinister purpose to decide the guilt and punishment of a traitor. Listeners, there is a very thorough investigation of this killing. It's 1943, a prison camp, the middle of World War II, but a no-nonsense Captain Theodore S. Maffet of the Army Corps of Engineers is appointed to head up the summary court of inquiry 
into the killing. And he does his very best to do his duty in this matter. He instructs Wilma to be thorough in her note-taking and not to talk to anyone about the investigation. Quote, I sat quietly at the end of a long table, listening to the officers plan the investigation. I learned that Kuntz had been killed in Compound 1 sometime between 10 and 10.30 p.m. after the American guards had left the compound for the night, as was their practice. The victim died, so it appeared, just outside the Company 4 mess hall. Unquote. The body is found just outside a side door of the mess hall. The mess hall is a simple rectangular building, wooden frame, looks like it's covered with tar paper set on a concrete slab, maybe a foot high. Um, inside, there are long dining tables and benches, a serving area, and a kitchen. There are doors at each end and on the sides. Inside the mess hall, after the murder, a lot of blood is found by the investigators. They note that it looks like there's been an attempt to clean up the blood. Broken, bloody dishes are found swept into piles. A milk bottle with blood and hair on it is thought to be one of the murder weapons. One theory is that Kuntz is killed in the mess hall and the body is dragged outside and left there. Another is that the victim runs outside trying to escape, but he's beaten to death there. There's such chaos that it's very hard to say what truly happened. The victim's body is found lying against the concrete slab. He's on his side in almost a fetal position. The photos are very grainy, but his head clearly took the brunt of the attack. It's smashed in, and there's a large pool of blood, and I think brain matter spilling out near his head. To me, it looks like one of his legs is broken and there's blood on the concrete indicating his head was smashed into it. In my opinion, this isn't just a beating gone horribly wrong. He was certainly meant to die. In my opinion, there's a beat down in the mess hall. Many of the prisoners don't want to be involved and take off, but some hardcore Nazis don't want to stop with just a beating. They pull him outside, surround him, and literally beat his brains out. Hundreds of men are interviewed about the meeting and the killing. Most are, understandably, reluctant to talk, and many, no doubt, lie. There's also a language barrier to overcome. Early on, 
the investigators decide to focus on the men with recent injuries and blood on them. To narrow things down a bit, about 16 men are put in the guardhouse. It's a very tense situation. Quote, the killing had created a state of high alert throughout the camp. No one knew what it signified, but there was fear of a riot brewing or a mass escape attempt, and the guards in the Ten Towers kept their guns manned at all times, ready to challenge the first sign of trouble, the first suspicious move on the part of any prisoner." Unquote. A willing witness is finally found, Joseph Heidecek. He is Polish, not a German, and not a Nazi. He was captured by the Germans when Poland was invaded and forced into the German army. This is his account of the events in the mess hall the night of November 4th. Hobfeld Fabel Bayer called for quiet, then said, Comrades, there is one among us who has given aid to the enemy. Next he read a letter about Hamburg. Then he looked at the man sitting at a nearby table, the one that was killed. The man turned pale and started sweating with fear. A group of men bunched up with the man who was killed in the center. Seven or eight were hitting him, and he tried to run away, but they held him back. As he tried to run back and forth from place to place, they hit him with their fists and yelled, kill him. And Kuntz was crying, no, I am not the one. I am innocent. I couldn't see who hit him first with 200 men there. A ring was always around him. Ask the name of those who actually hit Kuntz. Haidutsek will only say that the ones in the guardhouse are the ringleaders. Asked whether anyone tried to stop the beating. Only the priest. He begged them to stop. The second time he yelled, stop hitting. The men cursed him. By then, I was so sickened that I left and went to my barracks. Listeners, I would say that has a ring of truth. The 16 men in the guardhouse with blood on their uniforms are questioned, let's say vigorously. All but five are able to convince authorities that they were only incidentally involved in what happened. The blood on their uniforms happened because there was a lot of blood and a lot of things happening all over the mess hall. The five remaining all refuse to admit that they purposely killed Kuntz, but some do admit punching him. That will be their undoing. These five will ultimately bear the blame for the entire event. They are Hauptwelt, Hauptfeld, Webel, Walter Baer, age 32, Feldwebel, or Staff Sergeant, Bertolt Seidel, age 30, Unter Offiziers, or Sergeants, Hans Demi, 
and Hans Schomer, 23 and 27, respectively. And finally, Obergefreiter, or Corporal Willi Schultz, only 22. Committed Nazis, all. They're all charged with first-degree murder under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or the UCMJ. The trial of the five begins January 17, 1944, at Camp Gruber, Oklahoma. This is uncharted legal territory. Disciplinary issues at the camps are usually dealt with by the camp commander. The United States military has never court-martialed foreign prisoners of war, and especially not for any capital crime. So the chain of command treads very carefully as they go along. They are fully conscious that the Geneva Convention must be followed. The German government is notified. Understandably, considering the time, they don't seem to take much notice. The trial is not open to the public, but there are official observers there. The defendants have excellent military lawyers. Both sides are vigorous in their prosecution and defense and very thorough in presenting their cases. I'm not a legal expert, especially not when it comes to military justice. My impression, and it's a very general one, is that the military doesn't often prosecute cases they don't expect to win. I will say that to me, all of this is pretty murky. The prosecution's case is essentially that the defendants knowingly either set in motion or participated in a chain of events that led directly to an unlawful killing, to a murder. The first legal point the prosecutor must make is that Johannes Kuntz's death is a murder. The second is that exactly who struck the fatal blow is immaterial. As he says, quote, all concerned in an unlawful assembly are equally guilty of the subsequent acts done by any of them in furtherance of the common object of the assembly and all who join them in doing, countenancing, or supporting, or ready, if necessary, to support the unlawful act, thereby become parties of the riot and are equally guilty of all their acts. Briefly, he's saying all the people in a, lynch in a lynch mob are guilty 
of the lynching. It doesn't matter who put the noose around the lynchee's neck. It doesn't matter who kicked the support out from under the hanged man. Anybody in a lynch mob can be considered guilty of the murder of the person who was lynched. The defense's job is to shoot down these points. They try to convince the jury that the killing wasn't even a murder. It was manslaughter. Things just got out of hand. Or Kuntz is a traitor to his country. In the Germans' eyes, the killing was justifiable homicide. Even self-defense to them. Plus, the defendant's intent in calling the meeting at the mess hall was just exposure, not punishment. They called several witnesses to testify that Bear even tried to stop the beating. They even questioned whether the right men are on trial. And they have a point. After all, 200 men were at the mess hall that night. Why are only five on trial? Are these even the right men? The prosecutor faces that question squarely. Quote, well, we can't get all the men that were guilty. The fact remains that the defendants are equally guilty with the others, and it is no defense to say, well, you haven't got all of them, unquote. To me, what's really the heart of the matter is that riots and killings in prisoner of war caps, camps cannot be tolerated. There's a war on. An example must be made. And these defendants are the example. After eight days of testimony, the military jury finds all five guilty and sentences them to death. The sentences are appealed. No one anticipates an overturning of the jury verdict. U.S. President Franklin, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who has the final authority, signs their death warrants. The five are sent to death row at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas in March 1944. As I said, they are all executed July 10th, 1945. On July 14th, 1945, two more German prisoners of war are executed at Fort Leavenworth. Eric Gauss, 39 years old, and Rudolf Staub, 32. Again, the crime is the murder of a fellow POW, 24-year-old Horst Gunther. I could not find much information at all about this case. Nobody but, like Wilma, decided to write a book about it, at least as far as I could tell. On April 6, 1944, a body is found hanging from a telephone pole 
near Camp Aiken, A-I-K-E-N, a small prisoner of war camp in South Carolina. Like Camp Tonkawa, most of the POWs held at Camp Aiken are captured soldiers of the Africa Corps. Unlike Tonkawa, this is a very small camp, only about 300 prisoners. At first, the investigators believe the death is a suicide. Later, though, they charge Gauss and Straub with his murder. According to the few accounts I found, Gunter was a little like Johannes Kuntz, too friendly with the Americans. Prisoners claimed he liked jazz music and said good things about the United States and, quote, was a traitor to his oath flag and fatherland, unquote. There are various reports of the murder. One account of the killing says there were four other unidentified men who held Gunther down while Gauss and Straub strangled him. Listeners, I'll speculate a little here. There was a tradition in the German army called Heilige Geist, which translates to the Holy Ghost. It's a sort of vigilante justice within military units, fellow soldiers punishing another for some transgression like stealing or something they don't get officially punished for. The idea was that a small group of men with their faces covered sneak up on the victim, wrap him in a blanket or a coat, covering his head, and beat him up, being very careful not to kill him or let him know who they are. I wonder if that's how this started out, but it got out of hand. Maybe he saw their faces and threatened to tell. Who knows? Anyway, my guess is that the noose and the hanging from the tel- from the telephone pole was to try and cover up what happened. With so little information, I guess I'll speculate a little more. The death is originally ruled a suicide. I wonder if the U.S. military wasn't pretty happy with that conclusion, but POWs start talking about what really happened. Maybe the murderers even do some bragging. This forces the camp commander's hand. I, who knows, will and will probably never know. Anyway, Gauss and Straub are court-martialed at Fort McPherson in Georgia and found guilty and sentenced to death on June 17, 1944. They soon join Bayer and company at Fort Leavenworth to await their executions, which take place the following year. The two groups of POWs are housed very close together, and, and they're allowed to talk to each other. The final hangings of German POWs takes place in August 1945. The seven men executed die for the murder of Werner Dreschler, a submarine crewman captured when his U-boat sinks near the Azores, west of Portugal. There's a picture online of young Werner. He's only 21 limping across the deck of the American ship 
with sailors that pulled him out of the Atlantic. He looks so young and happy. This photo is in several places online. I'll, I'll post the one from um, the website www.uboatarchive.net on the blog. It's a very good website. Lots of interesting information. If you're interested about the U-boats, that's, that's a fascinating part of wartime history. There's much more information about this case, including another very good book, Death at Papago Park, P.O.W. Camp, by Jane Eppinga? Eppinga? It's uh, E-P-P-I-N-G-A. It's, it's also on Amazon.com. This book is full of background information about the war and Arizona and all the officers and men involved and the POW camp situation in Arizona. It's, it's really interesting. Papago Park POW camp where Werner Dreschler is killed is located near Phoenix, Arizona. Not that far from the Mexican border. It's quite a different place from Camp Aiken or Camp Tonkawa. The men held there are mainly naval personnel. They are a much more elite group than the Africa Corps. There are about 1,500 prisoners there. Many officers and very dedicated diehard Nazis are among these men. They spend their time plotting strikes and riots and escapes. Not a lot of campfire girls making Christmas presents or concerts out of these guys. In fact, there's a big well-planned escape that involves digging an elaborate tunnel at Papago. There's a YouTube video online about it. If you if you just do Papago Park um, POWs in World War II, there's a news report about this and with a guy who's written a book about it. Um, these men, the prisoners at Papago Park, are not going to cooperate with the Americans and they are not going to tolerate anyone who does. So, what of our rescued U-boat sailor, Werner Dreschler? Well, unlike the other two POW victims, it's well documented that Dreschler is very happy to cooperate with the Americans after his capture. According to him, his father is in a Nazi prison camp and he hates the Nazis and the German government. He will do whatever he can to help the Americans. He even goes undercover for the U.S. Navy, pretending to be a German naval officer to get information from others captured in the times when U-boats are sunk. 
he provides very valuable military information to the U.S. military. One would think that the last place someone like this should go is the camp at Papago Park, Arizona, which is filled with Nazi sailors, including his crewmates on the U-boat. One would be right. Unfortunately, procedures for keeping collaborators safe from other POWs are not very good. After a few months, Naval Intelligence finishes working with Dreschler. The Army is in charge of prisoners of war, so Werner Dreschler is put in their custody. The Navy does make it clear that he shouldn't go anywhere where he might run into any of his fellow submariners, but somehow those instructions aren't followed. They're possibly lost in the shuffle of paperwork. Who knows? On March 12, 1944, Dreschler arrives at the POW camp at Papago Park, Arizona, a place filled with captured U-boaters. He's dead within hours. Later, an outraged young American officer writes a scathing letter to his superiors. References made to the murder of Werner Dreschler at prisoner of war camp, Papago Park, Arizona, for which seven prisoners of war have recently been charged. The investigation in that case indicated that Dreschler had been used as an informant by G G2 or the Office of Naval Intelligence to assist in the interrogation and processing of prisoners at Fort Meade or some other installation in this vicinity. After his usefulness had been exhausted, Dreschler was shipped to Papago Park for imprisonment. He was a submarine man, and Papago Park contains numerous Navy prisoners. Dreschler is recognized as a traitor to Germany and was murdered. This result could, or should, have been foreseen, to put it mildly. It is recommended that some arrangement be made between this office and G2 and ONI so that we will be alerted when prisoners who have assisted the American authorities are transferred to normal imprisonment. Under the present system, the responsible officers who are transferring such prisoners without taking any steps to provide for their safety are bringing about their deaths more rapidly and efficiently than our courts martial are trying their murderers. Signed, R.E. Guggenheim, 2nd Lieutenant. In the case at Papago Park, there's no big meeting called by the Nazis. After Dreschler is recognized, the seven POWs who will ultimately hang for his death, I'll call them the Papago Seven, 
and a few others get together in one of the orderly rooms at the camp and discuss what should be done. The seven are very young, in their twenties, not high-ranking at all. None are officers. However, they are vocal, loyal Nazis. Their names are Helmut Fischer, Fritz Franke, Gunther Kulsen, Heinrich Ludwig, Bernhard Reich, Otto Stengel, and Rolf Wisny. They consult their superiors about what to do. This kangaroo court talks about options, and truth be told, little is actually decided there. Most want to kill him. Some argue for a Heilige Geist operation. Their superior officers are somewhat ambivalent, saying things like, something should be done, but not flat out ordering Dressler's execution. Finally, after trying hard to get others to join them, the Papago Seven decide to act. Their plan is to sneak into the barracks where Dreschler is sleeping, drag him to the showers, and hang him. I think they plan to get away with the crime, but Dreschler puts up a terrible fight that attracts a great deal of attention from the other prisoners. Some of the Papago Seven lose their resolve at this point and suggest letting the traitor live, but they all finally agree that he will report them if he lives. So they drag him, still fiercely kicking and screaming, to the shower room in Compound 4, where they get the noose around the victim's neck, stand him up on a bench, and kick it out from under him. Dreschler hasn't been at the camp even eight hours. The next morning, no one in the camp uses the showers. The body is discovered by U.S. Private Keith Brown, who reports to the camp commander that the death is not a suicide. The investigation hits a brick wall. The ranking German naval officer in the camp, Captain Jürgen Wattenberg, makes it clear that anyone cooperating with the Americans in the investigation will be severely dealt with. After a few weeks, the U.S. authorities have had enough. They've identified about 20 suspects. It's not clear how they did this, but my guess would be that they have informants they put pressure on. Plus, the first suspects would be those who had previous contact with Dreschler, like his old crewmates. And Dreschler did manage to hurt some of the seven dur during his desperate fight for his life. The investigators begin by looking for injuries on the prisoners of war. At any rate, the 20 men, the suspects, are transferred to a secret camp near Stockton, California for, uh, let's say, vigorous interrogations. How these prisoners are interrogated isn't known, ever. That information is classified. And the identities of the interrogators are also classified. There were two men who testified at the German courts martial as the interrogators, but their true identities are kept secret. They testify only as 
air quotes, Captain Oscar Schmidt and Sergeant Paul Held. Not their real names. So black ops type people. Whatever they did to get the prisoners to answer their questions, it worked. The men crack. Two of the men who were consulted when Dreschler was recognized as a spy name the Papago Seven as the ones who actually committed the murder. I'm sure they do this to save their own lives and possibly after being tortured. Who can say? Eventually, all charges are dropped against these two. The Papago Seven, well, they are, air quotes again, persuaded to confess. There are further attempts to implicate others, but ultimately only the seven stand trial for the murder. Their court-martial starts August 15, 1944, at Camp Florence, Arizona. The defense, of course, raises many of the questions raised by the Camp Tonkawa defense lawyers. They also strongly question the so-called voluntary confessions. But in the end, there's a foregone conclusion to this trial, too. The Papago Seven arrive at Fort Leavenworth's death row in January 1945 to join their comrades. They are executed the following August. There are attempts to save the lives of the 14 German POWs on death row at Fort Leavenworth. Within higher ranks of the U.S. military, there are serious misgivings about the executions. It's not just fears of reprisals against American POWs. A number of high-ranking officers feel that it sets a bad precedent. Finally, it's hard for many combat veterans not to feel sympathy for the condemned men. The elephant in the room is that many U.S. soldiers faced with a traitor in their midst would do just as the Germans did. There's some thought that they can be exchanged for American POWs held by the Germans. Unfortunately, the timing is very bad. The German government and their war effort are deteriorating rapidly. Late in April 1945, the Swiss managed to broker a deal to trade American POWs for the 14 condemned men. The U.S. government agrees to postpone any executions pending a possible deal. But then Hitler commits suicide on April 30th and Germany completely collapses. There's no one left to communicate with to help the condemned Germans. Roosevelt dies before all of this, and Harry Truman is the new U.S. president, and he has a lot on his plate. The Russians are threatening to overrun Europe. The Japanese are still vowing to fight on, so he's grappling with the decision to use atomic bombs in the Pacific. The full horrors of the Nazi concentration camps 
come to light in 1945. I seriously doubt that clemency for German POWs is on any list of things Truman is worried about. Thus, in July and August 1945, the United States executes 14 foreign prisoners of war for the crime of murder. This had never happened before, and it has not happened since. Were the three murders by the 14 men hanged at Fort Leavenworth really murders? Listeners, this is one situation I find it hard to be judgmental about. I have sympathy for everybody involved. The men who were killed, the so-called traitors, they may have been weak, selfish opportunists who just go with the winner in any situation and thereby betraying the trust of their comrades. Who knows? But look at the regime they're supposed to be loyal to. Maybe they were men who realized the evil endeavor Hitler involved Germany in and truly wanted to stop it. The men who were executed can be seen as evil murderers. There's no doubt many Nazis were basically sadistic psychopaths. Still, I don't see the 14 condemned men quite that way. We're not talking about the SS here. These are soldiers who've been indoctrinated for years. I think they got caught up in something they really didn't understand very well. And they clung to a misplaced faith that didn't serve them well. And they were very young. They all died not really understanding what had happened to them. Walter Bayer's last words were, quote, I cannot understand why this is being done. Unquote. Finally, what about the many people caught up in the security and legal situation the murders caused, the ones who had to resolve what happened, the investigators, the lawyers, the judges, I'm not going to pass judgment on these people either. They don't know the future. They're faced with something that is truly unprecedented. While the outcome of the war is still in doubt, the decision to use the Uniform Code of Military Justice was made. Many good men of the law grappled with the issues. In my opinion, the outcomes of the court-martials were legally justified. Morally, perhaps not. All I will say with conviction is that when survival of an individual or a nation is on the line, things happen. And those things may not be 
perfectly just when judged in hindsight. Gefreiter Johannes Kuntz is buried at Fort Reno Cemetery in Oklahoma. There was a rifle salute and taps was played at his funeral. No flag was draped on his coffin. It's not known what happened to his wife and children. Leipzig was almost destroyed by the end of the war. After the war, it became part of East Germany. His grave is posted on www.findagrave.com if you'd like to take a look and read about his story. I couldn't find much of anything about Horst Gunther or his family, sadly. Werner Dreschler was buried with full military honors at Fort Bliss National Cemetery near El Paso, Texas. The 14 prisoners who were hanged at the United States Central Military Prison at Fort Leavenworth are buried at the cemetery there. The facility is known as the United States Disciplinary Barracks, or USDB. Nowadays, there's a huge new building that houses the Central Military Prison. It's still called the United States Disciplinary Barracks. The executions were at the old place, nicknamed the castle, and that is exactly what it looks like a big, forbidding-looking stone building with high walls. The original building was opened in 1875. The old building is no longer used to hold prisoners. It contains offices and storage areas now. In fact, true story, Rick Burns, the guy you heard from the start of the podcast, <coughs> excuse me, works at the very warehouse where the prisoners were hanged. He says everybody there knows about the elevator shaft and its dark history. There is a cemetery, as I said, near the old DB where our 14 POWs are buried. There are over 200 graves there dating back to 1884 for inmates whose bodies were not claimed by relatives. By law, only the names and rank and date of death of the executed prisoners is on the Germans' tombstones. The area where the graves are is a little removed from the rest. It's at the very back of the cemetery. They're all in a row by the fence in order of their executions. I put a picture on the website of um, the line of graves. The little cemetery is not hard to find if you're at Fort Leavenworth. It's at the north end of the post, all by itself, fenced in. Uh, there's a road that runs right by there. It's west of the old DB, and there are signs posted um, that guide you to it. All these graves are on findagrave.com. 
There is a story from 2008 in one of our local papers by reporter Mike Belt. The POW's, tombsto the POW's tombstones are the cleanest and the widest in the Half Acre Cemetery. There are many German descendants living in the Fort Leavenworth area. It is generally thought that some of them decorate the graves of the POWs on Memorial Day and then again on German Remembrance Day. That's in November. There are flowers. Colonel Michael Obernair is the German Army's liaison officer at Fort Leavenworth. His office does not sponsor or organize any special observances or events at the cemetery for the Germans buried there, he said. And he said he didn't know anything about people who might decorate the graves. Quote, we respect the historical decisions of the U.S. We would like them to rest in peace, unquote. Thanks, listeners. If you would like to know more about the subject of this podcast, there are references posted in the show notes and on the blog. Don't forget to check out the Karata Project at www.karadahproject.com. They could really use your help if you're able to donate. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be super. By the way, I don't really want constructive criticism in those reviews. My family and friends take care of that for me. Thank you very much. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. If you hate putting your thoughts out there on the internet, I get that. You can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. <laughs>